This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. On America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to welcome to this program a great American and a brilliant mind, John Yoo. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a law professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He has worked in all three branches of government, notably as an official in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. He also served as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee under its chairman, Orrin Hatch of Utah. He has been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and a U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Silberman. John, indeed, it is our great honor to once again extend to you a very warm welcome to America's Roundtable. A good morning to you, John. Welcome, John. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for having me back. I had such a good time last time. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And we did hear that ring of the bell there, so we are certainly connecting with you in San Francisco. Yeah, that was the uh, streetcar going by one of those really steep hills and uh, telling all the pedestrians to run for it before they get run over. (laughs) Absolutely. John, in your excellent piece titled Biden's Eviction Moratorium Extension is Executive Overreach, published in the National Review in August 2021, you share that in March 2020, as part of its response to the COVID emergency, Congress imposed a temporary moratorium on evictions from rental properties that had participated in federal assistance programs or had federally backed loans. Congress then extended the moratorium through January 31, 2021. Thereafter, the CDC, acting unilaterally and without legislative authorization, extended the moratorium three times, up to July 31. The CDC's moratorium had a far broader sweep in that it applied to all rental properties in the nation, even those that did not involve federal funds or loans. And you stated, and I quote, lacking clear and specific congressional authorization, the CDC is without power to act on its own. Nonetheless, Biden gave the CDC permission to issue a new moratorium that did not differ in any legally significant way from the one that the Supreme Court majority had just found to be illegal. And you continued, It is rare for a president to undertake an action that the Supreme Court has just found illegal. It is rarer still for a president to do so lacking any principled constitutional grounds. And even conceding that most scholars and judges consider it to be, in fact, unconstitutional. Rarest of all is for a president to admit that his decision merely attempted to game the judicial system. Yet, that is exactly what President Biden has just done. John, you brought to our attention that Biden's action is not just overreach, but it subverts the idea that the executive 
is bound by the Constitution and the rule of law, even during the public health crisis. Could you kindly share with us your observations about this grave abuse of executive power by Joe Biden? Yes, and I have to, I'm sorry to say that these uh, unconstitutional actions are coming from the very uh, people who accused Republicans and President Trump of violating the Constitution and trashing the Constitution, acting beyond his powers as president. But Donald Trump was never ordered by the Supreme Court to stop something. And then Trump turned around and defied the Supreme Court and kept doing it anyway. Uh, this is something that has rarely, if ever, happened in the history of our country. And that's exactly what Joe Biden did. And let me explain why. So the power to decide whether there's going to be a moratorium on evictions because of the coronavirus pandemic, if that power rests anywhere in the federal government, it rests in Congress. The president doesn't have any power to decide what businesses are open or closed or so on. The president's there to execute the laws. And as you just uh, described, Natasha, Congress did impose a temporary moratorium that expired. President Biden couldn't persuade Congress to keep it going. So he just did it himself anyway. That's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court then stepped in and said, well, the thing's going to go out of business at the end of July, so we're not going to strike it down, but it is unconstitutional. So that's the second time Biden learned it was unconstitutional, yet he still did it again after the Supreme Court said no more and had to be reversed yet another time by the Supreme Court. It's an incredible defiance of the Constitution and the institutions that protect it, namely the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, as I said there, I think it undermines the rule of law. It's a front to our constitutional values. Yes, we're in the middle of this pandemic, but it's not an emergency in the sense that the pandemic just started. We're now talking about more than a year afterwards where Congress has passed multiple laws to address the coronavirus pandemic and the need for public health and safety. And Congress considered the moratorium and they decided against it. So I, unfortunately, I, think, I wish there was also just a one-time thing, but unfortunately, I think this is part of a pattern with this White House and this president, as I'm sure we're going to talk about more in a second. Right, John. And what are the sanctions or remedies in cases such as this, when the administration ignores the Supreme Court and acts counter to those decisions? The most immediate one is that the Supreme Court itself can authorize states, you know, authorize state officials to ignore the Biden order. You know, they can say, look, the Supreme Court says this effort to keep keep people in their apartments, even without paying rent, even when they might be trashing the apartments, even when the landlord might have good grounds to ask for, to seek a different tenant. The states are allowed to say, federal government has no power here. So we in the states will decide what to do. A governor and state legislature could decide to have a moratorium if they want in California, for example, or the governor and legislature in Texas can say, no, we're going to go back now to pre-COVID law and the emergency with regard to evictions is over. That's the first step. The second step is Congress has to play a role. This is an important political issue. Right? When the president violates the Constitution and defies the Supreme Court, I think that's a very good time for Congress to step in. Maybe Congress shouldn't confirm Biden's choices to be on the courts as long as Biden is right, defying the courts. 
maybe Congress shouldn't cooperate with the Biden administration and other coronavirus measures because Biden's going to ignore them and do what he wanted to anyway. So there's a, I think there's an important, not just the courts, not just the states, but we shouldn't forget that Congress has an important role too. Uh, John, in your relevant piece titled Why Biden's Vaccine Mandate Fails the Constitutional Test, published in the National Review in September 2021, you shared about another unprecedented use of federal power and how even the administration implicitly conceded that it does not have the power to order every American to obtain a vaccine against COVID-19. Instead, it had announced that it would issue an emergency order by way of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and OSHA will issue a rule that private employers with 100 or more employees require their workers to get vaccinated or get tested on a weekly basis or else lose their jobs. Uh, John, how do you see this playing out? I wish that what the Biden administration did with the eviction moratorium was just a one-off, a mistake, and he got slapped back by the courts and by the states, and he learned his lesson. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. It looks like he's doubling down on defying the laws and defying the courts. And so you have another good example, this vaccine mandate. It's just like the eviction moratorium. He's trying to push the federal government into areas where the federal power traditionally has respected the role of the states. It's up to the states to decide, are we going to have lockdowns? Are we going to have a more open economy? It's traditionally been up to the states whether people need vaccinations to go to school or to go to work. The Constitution doesn't give the federal government power over public health and safety. It gives the Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce and to tax and spend. And when the Constitution doesn't mention something, we always presume it's up to the states. And so states are the ones who are in charge of public health. The federal government can just help out by developing a vaccine and distributing it or supplying equipment and so on, closing the borders, but they're not in charge of nationwide vaccination. So what's Biden do instead? He just declares he has the power and then tries to pull pieces just like he did with the eviction return. Unrelated laws that really don't have to do with this, you know, to use OSHA, which is a law about workplace safety. You know, like making sure machinery doesn't break down and hurt the workers and to claim, oh, as president, I can use this law about the factory floor and pretend I can regulate every single workplace in the country is a claim of power that I don't think the courts will accept. Because if they did, then what would stop him, stop President Biden from just saying, I'm going to tell everybody how to live their lives and use as this hook, this workplace law. So For example, could he say, well, I want everyone in the country, in the workplace to get tested for AIDS. Right? I want everybody in the workplace to have this, to have that, just because they're in the workplace. The president can't use that law and leverage it into, I can regulate all of society on every subject. But that's what Biden's trying to do. I expect, again, the courts will have to step in, as they did with the eviction moratoriums, and slap the Biden administration down again.
Indeed, over the past few weeks, John, public events and noteworthy articles and op-ed pieces have commemorated the 30th anniversary of the confirmation of Justice Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this past week, Natasha Sardosh and I were in Philadelphia and had the opportunity to spend time. Oh, my yes, town. indeed, it's my beautiful. Yeah. Lucky you, lucky you. And uh, while we were at the Independence Hall and Congress Hall where America's founding fathers mm. met to debate and discuss the merits of breaking away from a tyrannical British monarchy, and as we were just contemplating and reflecting on the great work that was done on that, what we consider sort of certainly you know, sacred ground in advancing freedom and in that process, in that tumultuous season, they created two extraordinary documents, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And the latter has given us Americans an opportunity to better understand how nations governing structures, the significance of our freedoms through the Bill of Rights and the imperative of safeguarding our liberties. And indeed, one towering figure in our nation today, Justice Clarence Thomas, is a stalwart serving on the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court in our nation, and certainly preserving our freedoms. John, you were a law clerk of Justice Clarence Thomas, and your recent writing published in the National Review titled Justice Thomas's 30-Year Legacy on the Court, with the subheading on the uniquely American story and jurisprudence of Justice Thomas. And with your permission, I would like to read a brief quote from your excellent piece. I quote, America to Justice Thomas remains an exceptional nation. It is still, as Abraham Lincoln said at Gettysburg, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. John, could you describe to us and our engaged listeners your experiences as a law clerk of Justice Clarence Thomas, and your observations of his leadership and the principles he shared, and his commitment to the U.S. Constitution. So glad you asked me that, because with all the craziness going on in Washington, you know, with the Biden administration and these vaccine mandates and so on, and the fight they're having over the stimulus bills, and we, you know, might, you know, forget to look at things that are more permanent and enduring like the Supreme Court, uh, like Justice Thomas, who's now been there 30 years and is the senior most serving justice on the court now, and to appreciate what he's done as a justice. And I'm glad you were in Philadelphia and you saw, you know, the room where the Constitution and Declaration of Independence were written and you get a, you know, you go there, it's small. Yeah, it's not even, it's not even, it's just kind of a small classroom yes, almost indeed. by our standards today. You can see how small the people were, you know, the desks and the chairs seemed like they're kids' chairs, right? They're so, everything's very small. Um, and the reason I mention that is because I think of all the justices uh, Justice Thomas's uh, singular contribution is his desire to return back to his original founding principles, to interpret the Constitution not based on what we think it means today, but based on what the people then thought they were doing when they wrote the words. And not because he has some peculiar attachment to history but because I think he believes that, you know, what's important to him is not just the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence, that they expressed fundamental truths of human freedom and liberty that, unfortunately, we forget all too often these days. People may not appreciate that because they're not going to read Supreme Court opinions or they think it's filled with technical legal issues. 
But actually, his opinions, I think, really speak to the broader American people and are part of the broader American story of the steady growth of individual liberty as against what we've seen, unfortunately, in Europe and Asia, the overweening power of the state. And that, that understanding of the Constitution has a lot to do with, I think, the success of the country and the freedoms we all enjoy today, even though we might be fighting in the trenches against each other about this political issue of the day or that political issue of the day. Justice Thomas, I think, reminds us what's really important about the country. And it's a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's not government which pre-exists the people and we're just objects of the government. Instead, it's the reverse for him. The government is our tool and it's there to preserve our freedoms. In fact, it's something you know, worthwhile to remember when we're talking about, can the government force everyone to get a vaccine? Can the government force all property owners to suffer non-paying tenants and so on and so forth? But the real point of it all is individual human freedom and liberty. And in fact, as you mentioned in your article, and I would just encourage our listeners to seek out that uh, specific article in National Review title, Justice Thomas's 30-Year Legacy on the Court, written by John Yu. And you mentioned also in the piece about, you know, as we talk about and discuss and see these debates on critical race theory, last week we were sitting down with uh, Dr. Ben Carson talking about these very same issues, uh, but you spotlighted and actually drew attention to the fact that he here was a poor black child, and I quote, born under the scourge of racial segregation, rise to the prominence as a justice on the highest court in the land. And then he later mentioned his coming years on the court will reveal how his belief in natural rights may fare against the centralized government, identity politics, and critical theories of our own day, unquote. I think one thing it's important to remember is that we have had a history where these passing fads and fancies of intellectuals have sought to overturn our constitutional order, have sought to reject the idea that is in our Declaration of Independence that we're all created equal and you know, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. And instead, think of the people as things to be manipulated and controlled by government. Right now, it's this critical race theory idea, it's the fancy idea about what government should be doing and what the meaning of America is, and that it's a racist country and it's a terrible country. You would think that if that appealed to anyone, it would appeal more to Justice Thomas than anyone else on the court, in that he was the one who was actually born and lived under segregation. But instead, and he describes, he wrote a wonderful autobiography called My Grandfather's Son. And in that book, he describes how for a time when he was in college, he was attracted to these ideas and then he rejected them because he thought they were nihilistic and empty and just filled with anger. And instead, so someone poor, black, grew up in segregation, but rejects this idea of the 1619 Project, uh, even though he comes from a people who might have the least reason to support the Constitution, given their history in the country. And instead, he loves the country the most. He thinks America is a great, exceptional nation. And he's a living embodiment of that, in my mind. The fact that he could go from where he started to uh, the justice on the most powerful court in the most powerful country in the world, I think is a testament to what can happen if you do 
protect individual liberty and freedom. Uh, John, a special counsel Robert Mueller was appointed in May of 2017 to oversee the investigation in Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Two years later, Mueller's report said that it had not established that the Trump campaign criminally conspired with Russia to influence the election. In May 2019, special counsel John Durham began to investigate the origins of the FBI's 2016 Russia probe. Now, last month, John Durham indicted a Clinton campaign lawyer from 2016, Michael Sussman, accusing him of lying to the FBI to trigger an investigation into a rival campaign based on a false claim of Russia-Trump collusion. According to the report, Mr. Sussman was working with other Democrats and billing his time to the Clinton campaign. So, the Clinton team damaged the Trump presidency and pull off a direct assault on the U.S. democracy. Uh, John, where do we go from here? How do we first remedy this grave abuse of political power, which harmed not only President Trump, but also American people? And secondly, how do we prevent similar situation from happening in the future? I'm sorry to say that, again, it's an example of what we saw before with you know, President Biden and the Biden administration attacking President Trump when he was in office for violating the Constitution and then turning around, doing the same things they're accusing President Trump of. And here you have an example. You might remember back in the 2016 elections, it was the Democrats who were somehow claiming that President Trump was colluding with the Russians to undermine the elections. And actually what was happening was that the Democrats were trying to use made-up stories involving Russia to get the Trump campaign investigated and undermine the election. Free and fair, hard-fought election. And they tried to distort the laws and suborn our intelligence agencies and law enforcement to try to influence the outcome. of This was a line that everyone thought had been set after Watergate, right? That this would never happen again, that we would never allow law enforcement and our intelligence agencies to interfere with our political elections again. That's what President Nixon did. Turns out that's what Hillary Clinton was trying to do too. And that's what the prosecution by uh, the special counsel Durham is important because it shows that this is not, that this was real, that people from the Clinton campaign did try to use the vast powers of the federal government to stop Donald Trump from getting elected and in a way to prevent the electoral system from working properly. So how is this to stop so it won't go on in the future? I, I think that Durham should be allowed to continue on with his investigation, uh, to bring to light people who were involved in this and to hold them to account. I also, again, think that, that as I said earlier in our um, segment, I think that we shouldn't just rely on the courts. It's all too easy. I think that this is also something that Congress should investigate. Congress should subpoena and bring these people forward who John Durham is, after Durham's done, that Durham has investigated. And let's find out, let's get to the bottom of what the Clinton campaign did. Let's hear from Hillary Clinton herself. Did she know about this? Did she she authorize it? Her campaign was paying for it. It's such a serious step. I would, you would wonder, If she didn't know about it, that makes you also wonder about what was going on in the Clinton campaign. So I think that's a step that we haven't got to yet that um, still needs to be taken is for a congressional investigation 
to be done looking at the use of our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies to try to stop Donald Trump's election and maybe even undermine him while he was in office. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a law professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And we would encourage our listeners to certainly seek out John Yu's writings by visiting the Hoover Institution and also uh, the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Excellent writings. And John, we've truly appreciated, Natasha and I and our listeners have appreciated how you clearly articulate the significance of our U.S. Constitution and the key principles that are outlined in there for us not to just only read, but to also educate a new generation uh, with those words. So thank you so much for your continued leadership, John. And thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, John. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, and it was great to be back with you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.